Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Tesla shares absolutely tumbling to the lowest levels since 2016, tumbling below $200 for the first time in more than two years. Uh, a former Tesla bull said that, frankly, Elon Musk faces code red. Joining us now is David Kudla. He's chief executive officer and chief investment strategist at Mainstay Capital Management. Uh, I want to start with Tesla just to get your sense. Do you think right now that Tesla faces a tipping point uh, where we really are going to see the shares uh, go into freefall? I think they're already in freefall. Good morning. I, I think that, uh, you know, there's a couple of factors impacting the stock right now that have caused uh, a really a precipitous freefall from the 260, 267 level that, that it was holding at uh, several weeks ago. Uh, but the, you know, when they came out with the uh, kind of pull out all the stops cost cutting plan, uh, that was a kind of a code red condition. I think that the Wedbush uh, securities uh, letter or uh, report referred to, and and it's uh, it, it's. I think that we're really just seeing the story continue to unravel. Uh, it's more than just the demand uh, that continues to demand diminish for all models of the of Tesla vehicles that we talked about earlier this year. Uh, we're just we're just seeing that uh, you know the, the liquidity and solvency issues you know coming back to the fore. So, David, are you of the opinion that Tesla is going to need to come back for uh, more capital, maybe sooner rather than later? Well, you know they they just did right. They just had to come. They in addition to that two point three billion that they just raised, right? Right. They say you that's going to get said, them to free cash flow positive. Are you in that park, or are you in that? Uh, uh, do you think that's correct, or do you think they're going to have to even come back again? Well, they probably will. I, you know, there's there's the the school of thought out there that uh, they may they may be if they may be constantly coming back to the capital markets to stay in business if they can't uh, build and sell enough vehicles to to achieve profitability, and that's the real question at this point. Uh, we question if they'll have a profitable quarter anytime this year. And if if they can't achieve profitability at it, it, at some point, um, you know, it's not about a growth story anymore. It's about a solvency story. Tesla shares are currently down four point six percent, so off the earlier lows, but still a pretty a pretty rough day, especially after Friday's decline of seven point six percent. I want to shift gears to Ford uh, because they announced that they were cutting seven thousand jobs in order to uh, right size its business model or basically cut some of its management trim costs to increase profitability. Does this come as a surprise, especially given the fact that this is part of the restructuring announcements that they made? last fall no not at all it's it's interesting um you know, you know we we had uh last fall a big announcement by general motors of what was coming uh when they had their uh headcount reduction uh, we didn't have that out of ford uh we had they had um made reference to it, but we didn't have the detail. But that has been an evolutionary process. We've been talking about this with clients for months and working with our clients 
It started at the highest tiers of management uh, several months ago, and they've been working through each each of the tiers of management down to the the rank and file workers in the in the salaried workforce. And we're actually now in the final stretch of that. Uh, you know, when this letter came out from Jim Hackett, when we've seen all the details as part of their global restructuring plan, um, you know, a multi-year plan uh, to of you know globally restructuring. The, the corporation uh, that and that seven thousand jobs cut globally uh, twenty three hundred of those in in North America uh, some of those already accomplished fifteen hundred through the voluntary buyouts uh, last year and now uh, these layoffs that have been happening through through this year already so David and really really now it's just now we're hearing this big announcement of five hundred uh, people that will be notified tomorrow, but this has uh, been an evolutionary process that's been happening for months. So, David, you know, there's only, and there's obviously, I'm sure, a fair amount of costs that can be cut across, you know, the uh, the global auto industry, but at some point they're going to have to really start driving top-line growth. Where do you think growth for Ford and maybe even for, for GM can come from? Is it simply new products or do they have to go to new markets? Do you see a top-line growth story for Ford? I think there is a top-line growth story. I think that they've demonstrated that they continue to do well in the legacy business, and we we separate the business now, the auto industry, into two, the legacy business and the future of mobility. In the legacy business of crossovers, SUVs, uh, in, in the segments of crossovers, SUVs, trucks, they've done very well uh, this year, and their stock price reflects that with the uh, the gains in Ford stock in 2019, it's been an outperformer in the, uh, in the segment and relative to the S&P 500. Uh, it's been a tremendous performer. Yeah. And if we look at you know, what's coming in addition to this global restructuring, what's coming in terms of autonomous, uh, their, uh, their investment in Rivian, their yeah. investment in their own investments in autonomous and some of the partnerships uh, that they're working with, talks with uh, uh, other Automakers, right. we're, we're seeing we're seeing the the uh, some vision that strategic vision out of Ford uh, into Auto 2.0 yeah. that we think the growth is there yeah. as they shore up their operations around the world for profitability in the David, existing business. David Goodla, thank you so much for being with us, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Strategist at Mainstay Capital Management. Let's turn our focus to Deutsche Bank shares now at an all-time record low. Uh, there are a lot of reasons why people downgrading their profitability forecasts, the Commerce Bank tie-up that failed, but there also are some uh, regulatory issues, money laundering concerns, management issues with how these uh, issues are treated. And joining us here is Elliot Stein. He's senior litigation analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. So Elliot, I want to start with this New York Times story outlining how there were some bank who are uh, tasked with the anti bank staff who are tasked with the anti money laundering responsibilities that flagged suspicious transactions related to President Trump and his son-in-law Jared Kushner, and that uh, senior management didn't take them up on it. What did you make of the story? Sure, I think it's uh, important to remember the context here. And Deutsche Bank has been under a uh, cloud of money laundering uh, investigations for a while. 
Um, they settled in 2017 with the New York Department of Financial Services and the Federal Reserve over money laundering issues, including transactions in Russia. Um, but what's interesting is that they did not settle with the Justice Department at that time. And so when that happened, um, we expected that there would be continued investigations by DOJ and ultimately settlements or fines at some point. What's happening now is that every time you see more links between Deutsche Bank and Trump-related investigations, it adds a further cloud to those ongoing investigations. And as we saw the market react today, it adds to the headline risk for the bank. So what is the materiality in your perspective of some of these continuing money laundering issues for the company? Well, so overall, we based on their um, fine, the amount of their fines in 2017 um, and in 2015, um, when they settled uh, investigations related to sanctions violations, which are similar um, but not exactly the same, uh, we expect their ultimate um, exposure at this point to be up to a billion dollars based on the amounts they paid to New York authorities. And we looked at um, how much DOJ settlements usually are as a ratio compared to the New York settlements. Um, it could be a little lower than that. But you know, there's additional materiality going to your question, Paul. Um, if management in the bank intentionally suppressed suspicious activity reports because they wanted to keep uh, Donald Trump's business, it does raise questions of intentionality, um, and uh, that could make uh, an ultimate penalty worse. Just to put this in perspective, because uh, you bring some really interesting insights here, the idea that the DOJ did not sign off on an anti-money laundering type of settlement uh, with Deutsche Bank. How long has this gone on, and, and when do people expect that to wrap up? Well, that's a great question. And as with almost all DOJ investigations, you never really know what the timeline is because there's just not a lot of transparency. So I'm a little surprised that it's been going on for this long. I do think that maybe the Trump-related investigations add a complication to these investigations that we haven't seen in you know ever before when you have the president um, as part of these probes as well. Um, so we don't have a firm timeline. Um, so unfortunately, I can't give you a better answer. On so that. what's what's been the response from Deutsche Bank? It just seems like it's been years and years. I mean, you know, have, did they have had any specific response to the latest allegations, or is it just like oh, we're trying to get our house in order? You know. Yeah, no, a lot of it is that, and that they have taken remediation measures, um, and they've bolstered their uh, compliance um, procedures. Uh, their response in the New York Times article was that um, no person was ever restricted from escalating the issue further. Of course, that doesn't necessarily absolve them if management decided to suppress the SARs um, for nefarious reasons. We should just note that President Trump uh, did tweet about the story this morning, uh, saying basically that it is fake news and talking about how the mainstream media is the true enemy of the people. Uh, so he was just saying, you know, the failing New York Times, uh, keep writing phony stories about how I didn't use many banks because they didn't want to do business with me wrong. It is because I didn't need money, very old. Uh, so he is coming out against it. Just real quick. Just here, real quick here, Elliot, I'm wondering from your perspective, do you actually think that the shares are falling in light of this story or is it other issues? Uh, well, I think there are multiple issues going on in the news. Um, you, you alluded to some of them at the uh, outset. Um, but I do think that every time you see these stories surface about Deutsche Bank's money laundering risks, it reminds the market that these issues are still outstanding, that we still expect a pecuniary fine at some point, and that there may be ongoing issues. 
Elliot Stein, thank you so much for joining us. Elliot is a senior litigation analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Well, we saw with Beyond Meat the fact that their shares absolutely skyrocketed, more than doubling after the initial public offering uh, recently. It just shows how much demand there is for alternative food sources, for new ways to think about what we eat and how we eat. Joining us now is someone who invests in early stage companies that are trying to rethink the food that we eat here in America and worldwide. Jordan Gasper, she's managing partner of Excel Foods based in New York. Jordan, Thank you so much for joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. So why don't you just tell us what kinds of companies you actually invest in? Great. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so we are a venture fund that solely invests in packaged food and beverage brands that are better for you. So all healthy living directed brands. Um, we have 36 active portfolio companies and we typically invest in eight to 10 new companies a year. And we can participate as those companies raise capital many times over as they grow. Um, the companies range in size from pre-revenue to over 100 million in revenue. Um, and so it's a wide range of the different types of companies that we see. Um, all of them are available in distribution. Um, they can be purchased at Whole Foods or Car Costco or Target or Walmart, um, but all of the usual places that we would hope to see great products like this. So what's maybe one of the cool one or two companies that you think is really kind of a unique story in your portfolio? Um, Siete Family Foods. You know, it's a, a company that's a Mexican-American brand that has come up very quickly in the space. Um, it's a family-owned company that recently took in its first investors. Um, we're very proud to be part of the company. And they really have an authentic story as they're creating the next generation of Latin foods. Um, and we think about you know products like chips and tortillas and uh, taco shells. We haven't seen that much innovation in those categories. And so here we have grain-free chips. We have dairy-free quesos. We have uh, grain-free taco shells. It's a totally different spin on what are you know, staples that are in all of our diets. One thing that you were just saying uh, off air was that those processed foods and the foods that we grew up with are not going to exist in the near future. What do you mean by that? So I think that it's important to understand that there's two different types of changes that are happening simultaneously in the space. The first is, is we have a huge amount of authentic young brands that are coming into the space very quickly and scaling, and they're, they're the, the companies that are securing the shelf space at the major retailers. So those are you know, young brands that are telling different stories and have unique products. On the flip side, the incumbents are reformulating their holdings. And so we're seeing the organic version of this or the better for you version of that. And their substitutions and the basic ingredients that you know, processed foods are coming out as we're seeing, um, you know, sort of better quality ingredients substituted. So you're talking about the Cokes, the Pepsis, yes. the Procter Gamble, whoever creates food and puts it out there, Kraft, uh, Kraft Heinz. You said also that, that some of the end games for some of these companies that you invest in might be acquisitions by some of these larger companies. How quickly is that happening? Because it seems like uh, right now there still are a lot of processed food. There still are a lot of foods that, you know, are, are familiar from 10, 20, 30 years ago still on the shelves. 
So it's happening very quickly. Um, and I think that from our perspective, our hope is, is that all of our companies get acquired. <laughs> so I'd say that, you know, it there's been more capital direct into the space than ever before. You know, we've seen a lot of institutional capital come in very quickly, which is a good sign that we'll have more and more brands that'll grow larger because they'll have the sufficient capital to do so. Um, the strategics are more acquisitive. They are more excited and interested in partnering with young brands. Um, we certainly hear from most of them and they'll, you know, let us know that they're excited to get involved in the space with earlier stage companies in a variety of different ways, whether it be funding them, acquiring them, or operationally assisting them. There's been the launch of many of these accelerator programs, um, the venture capital arms. Um, but there's also behind the scenes, there's the use of their resources, which is something that's pretty unique. And so some of these strategics will say, I've got trucks that can be used for distribution or I have line time and manufacturing that can be used. So they're getting creative because they recognize that, that the future of their businesses is in these young brands. Are there any food or maybe what's the next food category or, or are there any food categories that haven't really innovated that were there, you know, there's no new products, there's nothing there that you kind of think is might be interesting that it may be kind of approaching your firm for funding? Um, so we're big, big believers in grain free right now. It's the next evolution of gluten free. And obviously, the nutritional panel is just better for you, um, particularly in baked goods. Um, one of the things that you know we've been excited about is, you know, baked goods have been pretty stale. Um, they haven't been good for you, um, highly processed, a lot of sugar. And we're seeing companies like Susie's, which is one of our portfolio companies that actually is a more paleo minded product, but it's almond based. And so the panel is actually clean. Um, and, you know, there's better quality ingredients, more mindfulness in it. And so it's reflected even in the way that the product has to be distributed. It's a frozen product because the ingredients aren't able to sit on shelf for many, many weeks. Is this a regional issue? In other words, is are these products being adopted on the coasts and then everywhere else in the United States, not so much? I would have said that a couple of years ago, but if we look at one of our companies, um, Alpha Foods, which is our own plant protein company, um, they launched last year, it was their first year, and all of the major retailers came in quickly. So it was Walmart, Target, Costco, um, Kroger, and it was all at once. So we saw mass and conventional move faster and natural then. Fascinating story. It's not just the uh, uh, the IPO of Beyond Meat. It's kind of uh, all across uh, the food spectrum and lots of capital being allocated to that. Uh, Jordan Gaspar, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Jordan is managing partner of Accel Foods uh, based here in New York City, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive uh, Broker Studio. Well, as a trade war escalates and tariffs fly back and forth between China and the U.S., China's textile industry looks particularly vulnerable as the U.S. is its biggest buyer. To get a sense of how big a deal this possibly could be, we welcome our next guest, Edward Hertzman. Edward is the founder and president of Sourcing Journal based here in New York City. He joins us in our Bloomberg uh, Interactive Broker Studio. Edward, thanks for joining us. When Thank I you. think tariffs on clothes and apparel, I'm thinking this is a big deal potentially. Yeah, I don't think uh, anyone really realizes how um, significant this can be to already a very fragile industry. Um, you're talking about, when, when we look at China, 
Uh, it accounts for almost 40% of the exports of clothing, almost 70% of the exports for footwear, and, and roughly around 40% of the exports for accessories coming into this country. So you're talking a lot of product made by a lot of retailers, uh, which there isn't really a lot of places for people to go in a short, you know, in a short period of time to mitigate this risk. So um, this is going to have a real big impact Q3 and Q4 if it does happen. So how, how big of an impact? I mean, how, how substantial will the tariffs essentially uh, be and how much will they be unable to pass on to consumers? Well, if we look at it, we're just talking about top line, right? We're adding 25% of the product coming into the country. Um, a lot of the orders for back to school and holiday have already been placed. So the, the wholesalers and the retailers already have margin in mind that they're playing with. To add 25% on that is something that the industry doesn't even have to work with. So the question is, who can absorb some of it in the short term? Who could, who's going to have to pass it along? I mean, you already have retailers like Walmart saying, hey, we're going to have to increase prices on things like furniture because that, that j- just got hit. Um, I think the more price sensitive you are, the more of an impact it's going to have in the short term because you just don't have the margin to play with. And I think that the idea that we have these alternative sourcing destinations, yes, we're going to see a migration to Vietnam. We're going to see more people going to places like India, Indonesia, Bangladesh. But let's not forget, they're not foolish either. They only have so much capacity. And with that comes in baked in inflation because there's going to be a rush to go there. And a year ago, you know, we had the same conversation, although nothing happened, people already started migrating. But a year over year, still we're talking about very, very small percentage of, of migration out of China. And the, the issue is that we've, we've come to a period of time where people have stopped chasing the cheapest needle, and they're now chasing the smartest needle because the conversation has kind of migrated to speed and flexibility and lowering inventory, which China is really the perfect place to be. So if we start moving to countries like Bangladesh, while we may save money, we lose the, the, the flexibility and quick turn, replenishment. So there's a lot of factors that are going to that are gonna hurt this industry. So give us a sense of kind of where we are with these tariffs here. These are proposed tariffs coming up, and we don't even know what retail goods or which clothing and apparel goods will potentially be uh, subject to these tariffs, correct? Yeah, so the, 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 you know, the technical term, the tranche four, if this goes into effect, would technically hit all the remaining imports from, from China, and included in that list would be apparel, footwear, and, and some textiles. Um, so in that case, it would be, you know, all the products that we're talking about right now. Um, the, the point you made is it's suggested that it, it, this will come up in the summer. If it does pass, it'll probably hit around Labor Day. And so the goods that are coming into the country around that time will be affected. We're hoping, you know, that this is posturing. Um, we're in a situation where, uh, you know, I'm not a political analyst, so... I can't say for sure, but the economy still is showing strong signs of you know, things are pretty positive. Why does he want to mess around and create a, a global you know, trade war, uh, which will negatively, negatively impact the economy? So some people are hoping that somehow this will be resolved before the summertime. A, a lot of people are pricing that in currently to market, certainly, that it will uh, be resolved at some point before this goes into effect. I'm just wondering, which areas of retail are the most price sensitive? Because you were talking about how that matters here. Well, obviously, you know, when you talk about, you know, commodity goods, um, things that are, well, first we talk about like perishable goods, things like that, that, that don't have a long life, life shelf that have to be replenished quickly. Um, 
you know, when you talk about retailers that are selling things for $4.99, $5.99, $6.99, you can imagine what a 25% impact to that would be. And the consumers that are purchasing from there don't have a lot of discretionary income. Some of the luxury retailers are concerned that when things like this happen, it, it trickles down, right? So you go from luxury to aspirational luxury, aspirational luxury down to the midstream, you know, you know mid-tier, and mid-tier down to you know, off-price and discount. So it, it could potentially hit every single uh, facet of retail. And then when, it, when you're talking about discretionary uh, income and discretionary products, um, these are, tend to be the, the things that are affected uh, first when it comes to purchasing decisions. Well, it's interesting. We did hear Walmart in the last quarterly earnings talk about, you know, suggesting that there might be some some issue with terms of uh, raising prices and inflation. What is your sense of how much, just real quickly, the you think that the consumer will have to bear if, in fact, this does go through? I think what the retailers are saying is that in the short term, they're going to try to work. Um, they're going to try to work through it, um, but that's just a short term solution. So some people, what they're going to do. Uh, whether that's the right or wrong decision, is they're going to try to maybe um, move some goods in pre-Labor Day and try to ho- – that, that, this is what happened before G20. A lot of people started airing goods in and hoping that it would um, avoid the increased tariffs. Now, the problem there is, again, it's counterintuitive to keeping your inventory levels low. Um, but these are only short-term solutions. I mean, you're going to see anywhere from a 10 to 25% increase at retail depending on the, on the product. Edward Hertzman, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Edward Hertzman is founder and president of Sourcing Journal uh, based in New York. This is one of the or the biggest uh, trade publication uh, catering to the uh, sourcing apparel and textile industry. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.